One of the best loved hymns of the faith, It Is Well With My Soul. You may know it's written, it was written by Horatio Spafford. Spafford was a wealthy businessman in Chicago, lost much of his real estate holdings in the Great Chicago Fire. After the fire, he sent his wife and four daughters on a ship to Europe, intending to join them later for a time of rest, as well as to assist Moody and Sankey with the revival of Great Britain. The voyage was struck by disaster, and Spafford received a cable from his wife with the painful message, Daughters gone, saved alone. Spafford quickly made arrangements to join his wife. When they reached the spot where his daughters had drowned, Spafford marked that sad event with words of hope. And you know them. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, whether it's peace or sorrow, thou hast taught me to say what? It is well, it is well with my soul. And those powerful words, of course, written in the midst of such pain are a reminder to us today that even though we may be enduring suffering and hardship, it is not the end of God's plan for us. Sometimes God's children get discouraged because it appears that life is going better for those who are doing wrong. And as you look around the world, you may think that. And yet the end result of both paths is already settled. Those who fear God will be able to say it is well and those who oppose God will quickly find that the end of their path is death and destruction. And keeping the end result in mind, of course, helps us to keep doing right. Last week we introduced this next section of Paul's letter and laid some of the groundwork for the context so we could really understand the sense of Paul's words as he talks about all of the difficulty in life and uh, the Lord's comfort inside that difficulty. I'd like you to read our next section together. We're going to start in Verse 5, we're going to go all the way through verse 16, as is our habit, so we get a chance to kind of let the Lord begin to work on our own heart as we see. And we've really titled this section, Faithful Ministry, Spiritual Responses. As we've come through the last couple chapters, we've seen underwhelming responses and how do you deal with that and all that. But what's really great is this kind of, this passage moves into a section where there's some encouragement. Paul's faithful ministry, that of Titus. Uh, we, we see some fruit and we're going to look at that. And, and that really becomes a marker for our own life. What, what spiritual responses look like in the life of the believer? So read with me in verse five. It starts for even. I'll be reading in the New American Standard. You can find that around you in the chair or just read in the copy that you memorize and read each week. And I'll keep you together with some verse markers. So verse five says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. Verse 6, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, and so I rejoiced even more. Verse 8, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Verse 9, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. 
Verse 11, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Verse 12, so the, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. Verse 13, for this reason, we have been comforted, and besides our comfort, we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Verse 14, for if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. Verse 15, his affection abounds all the more toward you, as he remembers the obedience of you all now. You have received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Stop right there. The author, William Arthur Ward, penned these words, Flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me and I may not like you. Ignore me and I may not forgive you. Encourage me and I won't forget you. And I find that that rings true here as we begin to get in this passage. The tasks of ministry a ministry of reconciliation, acting on our role as the ambassador of God and the care for the church can be overwhelming. Even doing the work in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in the flesh can be a burden and can make you feel like a failure. But Christ is always more than sufficient, we saw last time. And and we have seen that God brings comfort and Christ gives us encouragement at just the right time as we go through the ministry. And he gets glory for the successes in ministry, and ministry led by Christ is always accomplishing what God desires in his timing. So things can be, can be said, it is well with my soul. We can say that at all times as we work our way through the difficult times in ministry because we know that these things are true and set in place. And as we will begin to see, and we did a little bit last week as we worked our way through the narrative, that Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14 really picks up the story of Paul's discouragement from Second Corinthians 2.14. If you missed that, catch that from last week. Second Corinthians 2.14 leaves off with, we went to Macedonia, and then a whole parenthetical statement about how to manage the hardships of ministry. And then you get to Second Corinthians 7.14, and you pick up the narrative again as if he'd never left it. And he talks about coming to Macedonia. And how he managed the ministry through the ups and downs and lets us know what happened when he left Troas and went on to Macedonia. And, and, and then through this mostly narrative passage, we, the first principle we saw of faithful ministry and spiritual responses was this. Uh, number one, God knows right when to give us the relief that we need if we're relying on him for the outcome. And that's just a general overview. And we've seen this over and over in the scriptures that God knows when to give comfort. He brings it at the right time and it's always available to us. And so, uh, those really verse six elaborates on this principle. Verse 6 says, but God who comforts the depressed. And and who, who is it that comforts the depressed? God, right? And the words, but God, we saw really as a reoccurring encouragement throughout all the scriptures. It's a display of sovereign initiative or sovereign purpose. God takes the initiative to come at the right time and provide the comfort that we need. Paul is very familiar with God's impeccable timing. He talks about it over and over again. We did kind of an overview last time, and you can catch that uh, if you'd like. Uh, on your own time, but for our purposes and for our good, he does these kinds of things. And this is sovereign initiative. And, and all throughout the ages, he knows when it's time to step in. And that's a wonderful phrase as we begin to read through it. And as you, as you kind of mark that through your Bible, you'll see 
that uh, along the way, the mercy and the comfort God provides to his children becomes very evident. The salvation that he provides at right the right moment and all of that. He knows, uh, Paul knows this is God's nature. Nothing's going to convince Paul uh, that this isn't true. And we see this over and over again. Uh, we are to look at our lives as tools, really, that God is preparing for his own purposes and for his use. And you are not a victim of uncontrolled circumstances. That is never the case for a believer. You are never the victim of uncontrolled circumstances. God in his sovereignty uh, will sometimes have us go through very difficult times, times of suffering. And so these circumstances, though, are not circumventing God's ultimate plan for us any more than they did for Paul. Any more than they did as we looked last week at Joseph. It's working in harmony with it. And he knows how to comfort. It's always available. And, and that's what we saw repeated to us again and again, as Paul has uh, kind of gone around this point numerous times in his letters. So it's as if the Holy Spirit really knows we need constant reminders of the truth that you are not a victim of uncontrolled circumstance, that the Lord is going to bring comfort in his timing. And when he brings that comfort, we can comfort others. Now, it says about God who, who comforts the depressed, Comforted us by the coming of Titus. And, and our second principle, just obviously a faithful ministry and spiritual responses was you can be sure God always brings that comfort. And we've seen that over and over. God who comforts, uh, parakaleo, the compound verb parakaleo, para is beside, kaleo is to call. This is God's nature. As we saw last week, the apostle found himself stretched thin in Macedonia. And God is the only one who can step in and help. And then we saw uh, the disposition of those, uh, God is particularly interested in comforting. And that is whom? That is the depressed. God is particularly interested in comforting the depressed. So that's part of what goes on as God is inclined to those who are in the adjective tapenos, literally low-lying. God is inclined to those who are low-lying. So don't think that your, your hardship and your difficulty and your, and your, your uh, feelings at some given point in your life are ignored by the Lord. He is particularly interested in comforting the depressed. And God is the only one that can do it. Again, we seek comfort from all kinds of things. We think comfort from pharmac- from the pharmacy. We think comfort from, from counselors. But this is not where comfort comes from. It can come from a counselor as long as he is pointing you or she is pointing you towards the sufficiency of the Christ in the scriptures and your ability to be whole because God has shown that you can be. And beloved, I, I talk about this a lot because this is a pervading problem in our culture, even among believers, a pervading feeling of being depressed and down and downtrodden and a victim and all of that kind of stuff. Listen, this is not where the Lord's going to have you for you to be victorious, victorious and a comfort in other people. You can't sit there, okay, not and say that this is where the Lord has me right now and I'm just, I, I'm, I'm helpless to do anything. Comfort comes from the Lord in as much as you can get it from someone else if they bring that comfort that comes from the Lord to you. But what I've found most of the time, especially in, in modern counseling, is what we're doing, what people are doing there is, is developing dependence. They're creating a dependence, a continuing recycling of a, of a client to come back because that's where the money is. And I'll just be clear about that. Okay? If you're a counselor and you're helping focus people on the sufficiency of Scripture, particularly if you call yourself a biblical counselor, and you're focusing people on the sufficiency of Scripture and the fact that you are not a victim of uncontrolled circumstances and that, in matter of fact, God is particularly interested in comforting the depressed and brings that comfort so you can go full circle and be a comfort to others. If you're not learning that, then all you've been learning is how to be a dependent on that counselor. Okay? And you need to divorce yourself of that whole situation. So I say this a lot just because this pervades the church. Okay? And you don't have to live there. 
You know the disposition of the Lord. You know much about Paul's attitude and much about Paul's life. And you know how this was all accomplished, okay? And he confidently says this over and over again. We're going to see uh, another way he cycles around again here in just a second. It's just so encouraging to us that this is what the Lord does. The low lying. He's interested in those brought low with grief, brought low with hardship. Wherever you are, God is the only one who can do this. And he does it, and he does do it, and it is who he is. And the word comforter as a noun is the name of the Holy Spirit. So obviously part of his nature Paul says God stepped in to help. And that was our third principle of faithful ministry spiritual responses. God always gives comfort to the lowly. He is, he is directly concerned about all who are in this position. And apart from him, there won't be any true comfort. And God is always giving to all the lowly, and there doesn't appear to be any exception anywhere at any time. And it's interesting, uh, and I think really this is, is really the issue, perhaps, with believers. And it's just an illustration about my time living in the Southwest. I grew up in, in uh, Southwest Arizona. And there were two birds that we saw a lot of. Uh, one was the cactus wren, which is the state bird of Arizona. It lives in the sorrel cactus. And then the turkey buzzard. As you, I mean, that's kind of the, the iconic picture of the desert, right? It shows a cow half eaten and a turkey buzzard standing over it, right, with the, the horns. Okay, so you get that. But that, that's not, a, that's not a stretch. Okay, I spent a lot of time outdoors, a lot of hiking, a lot of hunting. This is, this is what you see, among other things. But both of them fly over the desert. One of them just sees dead stuff. And that's what they're drawn to, and that's what they look for, and they thrive on that diet. Cactus wren flies over the desert, and it's looking for the fruit of the prickly pear. It's looking for the fruit of the saguaro. It's feasting on those kinds of things. It makes its home in, in a living cactus. The first bird lives on the past. They fill themselves with what was. Cactus wren lives on what is now. They make their home there. They seek their new life. They fill themselves with freshness of life. Each, each bird, find, really, the idea is that each bird finds what it's, what it's looking for. And I realize the illustration falls, falls short of where the Lord would have us. But I think that you can get the picture because this is the issue with believers. If you are looking for comfort, it's there. And you'll find it. And you'll find that which is life indeed if you're looking for that. Because the Lord is very clear about it, that he comforts the depressed and that he is an ever-present help in time of trouble. And you are going to be then fulfilling God's purpose for your life as a life giver yourself. But if you're looking for the past and you want to dwell there and you're going to fill yourself up with that, then that's all you're going to see and that's all you're going to know. And life will be overwhelming to you. And so we know God comforts the depressed. And beloved, this is not a word game that you're playing in your head. I know I can be, I can always be, I can be encouraged. I can be encouraged. I can be encouraged. God wants to encourage me. It's not a word game. It's a reality of your life. And you need to begin looking for that. Perhaps it comes in the form of a person who's by your side all the time and constantly encouraging you or writing you little notes or whatever it is. It's the word of God that constantly says and speaks words of encouragement and comfort to you. 
We know he comforts the depressed. It's not a word game. It's not a mind game. This is a reality for every believer. And, and to experience it, you have to start. Here's the thing. You have to start looking for the beauty of that reality. Okay? If your identity is that you're a victim, that's all you're ever going to see. If your identity is what's past, and that's where you live, then that's all you're going to have. You're never going to get to the point where you become, in that full circle, a comforter for somebody else. I don't know where you are in all of that, and, and hopefully that doesn't affect you, and you've, you understood that, but if, it, if it's helpful to you, I want you to know, this is the encouragement that comes from the Scripture. This is the reality of your position. And what you look for as you really fly over this terrain of the Bible, what you look for in your Christian life is what you're going to find. If you're looking for that comfort, it's definitely there because we see that over and over again. So God who comforts the depressed covered us by the coming of Titus, and God's good like that. And, and at the right time, this comfort for Paul came in the form of a person, the timely arrival of Titus. We're going to see today from Corinth and the message that he brought with him. So not just his arrival, but what he said. And, and it's good news of spiritual responses uh, for a faithful minister, and we get a, really a breath of encouragement for Paul and comfort and joy. So from verses 6 through verse 16, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 6, God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. So it starts with comfort. And then at the end in 2 Corinthians seven sixteen, it says, I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. So it ends with joy. And in the middle, in 2 Corinthians seven thirteen, for, for this reason we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoice even more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed. So in the middle, there's comfort, joy, and refreshment. So it's all through the section, okay? It's not even, it's not hidden. It's not marginal. This is exactly what was supposed to occur. It came at the right time. And this is what's always available. So in the middle, there's, in the middle, there's comfort, joy, and refreshment. At the beginning, there's comfort. At the middle, there's comfort. So this is just where it is. And it's important to remember that just because Paul had all of this, and this is the second thing I want to really drive home today. Not that you're going to find, not just that you're going to find what you're looking for, but just because Paul had all this comfort, catch this, beloved, it doesn't mean there weren't any more problems. Okay? The comfort comes, and that doesn't mean that's the end of all the difficulty. And that's our next principle of faithful ministry and spiritual response. That's number four. The comfort God brings doesn't mean the end of problems that caused the depression to begin with. Okay? Paul was down. He was downtrodden. No question. It's not a sin to be there. Okay? It's a sin to stay there. You don't have to stay there because the Lord comforts the depressed and you can make that cycle back and start comforting somebody else in this very similar situation. And, and this, of course, point is not directly listed here in this passage, but it's clear from the rest of the letter that the problems and struggles that Paul had were not removed. And all you have to do is just keep reading on in the letter and you realize that the problems continued for Paul and he had to address them. See? In fact, you get to chapter 10 verse through chapter 13, and what's he doing? He's talking about other issues. This is a letter to the church. And to illustrate the very important point, the Lord, that the Lord can bring comfort to the depressed and bring victory and success in his eyes, in your life, you know, we see chapter 12 that even though Paul asked for the Lord to take away a certain problem he was having, the Lord said no. In 2 Corinthians 12, 8, and we'll get there uh, in a number of months, but it didn't matter here what the situation was that caused Paul the grief, okay? Whatever it was. In fact, Paul said, it tormented me. And if you look at, at verse 8, 12, 8, you would see that. And he had a thorn in the flesh, 
We're going to talk more about perhaps what those things could have been. But regardless, he makes a very broad application later, so we know that it wasn't some certain thing only that Paul suffered. It had a lot of things uh, kind of taken in with it. But the fact of the matter is this. So he has this difficulty. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. It's a hardship, no question. And then it says this, and I love this dialogue between Paul and the Lord. It just shows you that Paul's just like you and I, okay? So he says, concerning this, I implored. That's parakalisa, aorist, active, indicative. And you know this, the verb form of parakaleo. I, I implored. I called alongside. I called the Lord alongside. I implored the Lord, okay? I implored the Lord three times that it may leave me. So here's a difficult situation that he's in. And he is very honest and transparent here and says, three times I asked the Lord the very same question. How many have asked the Lord the same question more than three times about a difficult situation and you wished he could take it away? Of course. Yes. Everybody has done that. Lord, I'd really like this not to be the case right now. Could you please take it? And, and it's in the aorist tense. So I implored just means that Paul is recalling every individual point in time when he came before the Lord and said, please, Lord, deliver me from this difficulty. So we know where Paul is. He's recalling the points in time. He called the Lord aside, alongside for deliverance. Paul received comfort. We know that for sure, right? We see it over and over again. But that doesn't mean that the problems were over. He pleaded with the Lord to take it away. And no doubt each time, this is, this is what Paul understood from the Lord. Verse 9 says this. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. So the Lord says, my comfort, my strength, my presence is enough to meet the needs that you have. For power is perfected, teletai, present passive indicative. My power for your life is perfected in weakness. And the, the passive there is, it is accomplished. It's acting on the subject, which is Paul, through the problem. Okay? So I'm, I'm going to bring you power perfected in the middle of your weakness. I'm not taking the weakness away. I'm not taking the hardship away. I'm not taking the, the thorn in the flesh away. You recognize that you're powerless to do anything about any of this, and you've asked me three times to take it away from you, and I'm telling you, uh, the Lord says to Paul, through the problem, I'm going to accomplish to its fullest potential in your life my power. And I'm going to do that, Paul, as long as you are not in the way of that process. So there is power available for comfort and living and ministering and it isn't found in your prideful self-sufficiency. So here's the thing. Does it appear that the Lord's going to take away the problem from Paul? And what's the honest answer? That seems like a pretty firm no from the Lord. Does Paul already know this fact when he's writing what we know is chapter 7 of this letter? Yes, he just hasn't got to that point yet, right? But it's already experienced, he's already experienced it in his mind. He already understands that the Lord doesn't always take away the difficulty. Was he still comforted? Apparently. He said he was very comforted in the coming of Titus and the report that Titus gave. Were, were the problems gone? No. 10, 11, 12, 13, we're going to see them still there. 
obviously they're still there. Paul's relaying to us about a conversation he continued to have with the Lord. Three times he had it, see? And how did Paul respond to that answer of no? I'll, I will strengthen you in the middle of your weakness. My power will be perfected in you in weakness. How did he respond? Did he walk away kicking the dirt and saying, bang? Did he say, this is so uncool? No. Did he sulk away and slam the door behind him like your children do sometimes? Right before they get a spanking from you, I hope. No. What was Paul's settled response? Here it is. Here it is. Okay, are you ready? This is, this is the guy who asked the Lord three times in a row, please take this problem from me. And every time the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. So here's Paul's answer. Here's his settled understanding. And he knows this when he's writing this earlier portion we're looking at. Okay. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. That is Paul's settled attitude, see? The Lord's not going to take away my trouble. Some of it's going to remain. I'm going to still be troubled by it. Uh, it may be an individual. It may be a circumstance in your life, whatever it is, okay? He's still, still going to trouble me, but he has promised to comfort me and perfect me and make me like his son. Therefore, Paul says, I will rather boast. Future middle indicative. Mark this, beloved. And this is so important to this point and one that believers miss so often. Literally, this will be my firm resolve. So if you think about a time stamp and you just think when Paul is having this conversation with the Lord and the Lord and the third time has said, no, I'm not going to take it away. Paul says, okay. And this is the wrestling that has to go on with this understanding of the reality of your life. There has to come a point when you have a firm resolve and you will say, because that's what Paul says, uh, Paul says, future middle indicative, I will rather boast. See, this is my firm resolve. Rather than complain, I'm going to live my life from, this is what it means, here on out. That's the future tense. From here on out, this is the direction I'm going to go, see, to glory in the fact, that's the middle voice, so the subject is doing the acting. I'm going to glory in the fact. It's a volitional response. From here on out, I'm going to glory in the fact that God has chosen to work through my weaknesses. I'm going to be right here, perhaps till the Lord comes. I may have this difficulty all of my life. It may be a physical thing. It may be a job thing, a relationship thing. I, I don't know. And we're going to see in just a minute, it's, it could be any number of things. And I think everything that you can ever have that bothered your life is going to fit under one of these headings in just a second. We'll see. So in other words, here it is. He's chosen not to fix it, and I've chosen to rejoice in it. He's chosen not to fix it, and I've chosen to rejoice in it. That's precisely where Paul is. I asked him three times, please take it away. And some of you may be at 300. Just get to the point where you're going to say, this is my firm resolve from here on out that rather than complain, I'm going to live my life from here on out, future tense, to glory in the fact that God has chosen to work through my weaknesses. I'm going to fly over the desert and I'm not going to look for carrion. I'm looking for fresh. And fresh is there. See? And when I do this, I do it, look at the last part, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. My real desire, if I'm going to make it through the rest of my life this way, is that the power of Christ is going to have to remain in me and dwell in me. That's where I need to be. 
see? And I'm not going to get that opportunity unless I firmly make a resolution in my mind that this firm resolve that rather than complain and rather than groan and grumble and live in, in, in defeat, I'm going to live in victory because the Lord is going to be at work in me regardless of what my situation in particular at this time may be. So that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Episkenose, aorist, active, subjunctive. And subjunctive is the mood of, remember, contingency. What is the contingency? Well, one thing is dependent on another. We have to get to the point where we're okay with some of the problems still being there in order for the second part to be true. And we, we've explained that clearly, but here just makes it, the verb in its tense and voice and mood make it very clear. The first part is contingent on the second. So this dynamic, this volitional response, this attitude making its way into the thought life and the action, see, and then the power of Christ can dwell in me. Integral to verse 10. Therefore, I am well content. And here it is. So anything you're going through is going to fit under one of these headings. And you can see that, can't you? I can be well content, not just in the thorn in the flesh, which Paul is talking about right now, but he understood a broader application, didn't he? I can be well content. I am well content. So that is the reality of Paul's life with weakness. Insult, distress, that's pressing pressure, persecution, difficulty, for Christ's sake. See, Paul says, I'm well content with my lot for Jesus' sake. Why? Well, first of all, because the love of Christ constrains us. One died for all, therefore all died, Second Corinthians 5.14. So we understand that he gave up his life in exchange for ours. So we understand how valuable we are. And because you understand your value, he has chosen not to take away some of these things. What things? Some of my weaknesses, some of the insults that come to me. You know, there'll be people who will insult you all of your life. Did you know that? Usually it's family. That's been my experience. A lot of times it's family. But it could be individuals that bump into you. They don't even know they're doing it. It's just their demeanor. Weaknesses, insults, distresses. They're going to come along, aren't they? Pressing pressure comes along all the time. I mean, we maybe at the end of every month when the budget runs out and the month is still there, right? When you get in the press. I don't know. Persecutions. Living a life of faith is going to create some problems for you. You're clear in your moral stance. Difficulties. I'm resolved to rejoice in that fact. Why? Because he's promised to work through them without promising to take them all away. And I'm okay with that. See? And what is the sure outcome of your faith in him then? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Not in your strength, in his, which is far superior. So, in 2 Corinthians 7, 6, but God who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, starts with comfort. And the only qualification necessary to receive the comfort of God is that you're his and you need it. You're his, and you need it. That's the only qualification. Be in suffering, be in persecution, be in difficulty, be in weakness, be in insult, be in distress. And God, the God of all comfort, will come and comfort you. And as a footnote, and we didn't mention this last week, 
if your discomfort, of course, is a result of his chastening for your sin, he'll be ready to comfort you when you repent. So, starts with comfort. 2 Corinthians 7.16, I rejoice in everything I have confidence in you. It ends with joy. And in the middle, it has comfort, joy, and refreshment. Mark this. And we know that Paul had all of this, had all of this in the middle of his problems. They had not been taken away. He had this little breath of, breath of fresh air with some, some movement in the right direction in the church. But it wasn't, they weren't all gone, and he knew it wasn't going to be that way. His life was full of those kinds of things, as yours and mine are. Let's move on to verse 7. I suppose we could say that Paul would have been uh, very comforted just by the return of Titus. Verse 7 says, not only at his coming, it would have been enough just to have him there, right? So Titus comes back. So we jump from 2 Corinthians 2, 14, we move up to 2 Corinthians 7, 6, and then he says, Titus came. And so it would have been really great just to have Titus there, right? No matter what he said to Paul, Paul could have taken bad news from Titus, and it would just have been great to have somebody to weep with, right? Somebody to empathize with uh, when you're both invested. If you have another minister who's ministering in the same group of people uh, and you have hard things, it's great to have them there because you can be a blessing to one another and weep with one another. But Paul could tell that something was happening in Corinth, and he says, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. Apparently, Titus was depressed as well. And we'll get to that in, in uh, a later time. And it says at the bottom of this passage that Titus was also encouraged by what he saw in the church. And so Titus is having a difficult time, and, and he, as we suspected was probably the case. And just anecdotally, you know, we all know about trouble between people. If you're ministering, you know the difficulties individuals can have. And it impacts everybody, and Titus was no exception. And I can imagine in my own mind that, you know, what Titus' fleshly reaction of being asked by Paul to go to Corinth and deliver deliver a difficult letter, you know, it would have been, oh, great, that's how I want to spend spring break dealing with relationship issues, you know. I, instead of going on, you know, to the coast, I'm going uh, to Corinth and um, I'm going to be spending some time there with difficult people. You know, that, that could have obviously been a fleshly response, right? I'm sure this is not how Titus reacted in spite of the difficulty that it could be a part of the trip when he's sent there with the, with the uh, harsh letter. He did it because he loves the church and he wants the Corinthian church to be healthy. So he went, but apparently he went with a heavy heart. But the Lord comforted Titus, as we're going to see, and, and how they treated Titus was very, very important. Titus needed the comfort, and he shared Paul's anxiety, and he shared Paul's concern over the lack of reconciliation. And he no doubt went with some fear and a little bit of trepidation and anxiety, not knowing just what to expect. And, and the fact that he came back, and it was clear from his demeanor that he was comforted, it was so greatly encouraging to the Apostle Paul. It's, it's hard to know, of course, but, but the Corinthians had opened their arms and their heart to Titus and, and some other things, and... and through that response, Titus is comforted. And they had the right response to the sorrowful visit that he had brought to them in the severe letter that had followed, and he was finally get, they were finally getting their act together in some respects. And as we said, the troubles are not over, but the church was changing for the better. So Titus is comforted by this attitude and this demeanor of the church, and Paul is comforted by the report of Titus about the church, and, and, then we, what, and, and what we have next is Paul really interacting with the information he got from Titus in this Second letter, this letter of Second Corinthians, which he's going to send back to the church. See, so Titus comes. He has a conversation with Titus, and then he records his own reactions with his conversation with Titus, and then he's going to send that back to the church. So the church is going to know how encouraging it was to hear how they received Titus and hear how they had been moving in the right direction. 
So it's just in real time, this is how this is going on. So Paul's interacting with this information he got from Titus. He's going to send that back to the church. And Paul says, I was exceptionally comforting to me to see Titus, but it was far more comforting and a cause for joy for me to get the report that he gave. Now look at the last part of verse 7. And we'll see that um, the response, they're starting with their attitude uh, toward Paul and, and more how they uh, were conducting their life was very, very encouraging uh, to him. So as you begin this little section, it's very, it's very directed towards the relationship between Paul and the church. The real problem was a lack of reconciliation. We saw that at the beginning. There, there, the love was only one-sided. Paul was extending this this uh, fervent kind of love towards the church. It wasn't being extending back. There was a, a problem with reconciliation between some people and Paul. They were blaming him for all the problems, and they were really the offending party. And so Paul is uh, going to relay the relationship between himself and the church first, and that's what we're going to look at. And then he moves on to a broader, uh, broader stage, really, and says, and by the way, the way you're conducting your life in a bunch of these other areas as a result of godly sorrow is so encouraging to me, too. But he's going to start with a relationship, and that's what we're going to see first. So Titus comes. He gives he gives this great uh, great report, and then he says, "Your longing, your longing." That's the first thing he talks about. And we'll just move quickly through this as we look at spiritual responses flowing out of faithful ministry. And each of these spiritual responses is qualified by the last part of the sentence that says, "For me." Do you see it? Your longing, your mourning, your zeal. Then he says, for me. So you can see that the reconciliation of the relationship is first in Paul's mind. What does it mean? Well, it's good desires. A couple of great illustrations to give you the sense of it in Luke twenty-two fifteen. Jesus says to his disciples, he says to them, he said to them, I have earnestly desired, there's our same word, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus longed for the fellowship, so he's earnestly desiring to have some time with his disciples in this most intimate of meals, uh, one with so much meaning concerning his own purpose and why he came. Paul uses the word in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. He says, uh, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the, here it is, desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far very much better. And we know Paul's heart. This was this great longing of his life to be with the Lord. And he, he stayed with the church, he said, because that's better for you, but I prefer to be with Jesus. Okay. So we understand that. And then he uses it again. First Thessalonians 2.17. And this is our most connected illustration for our meaning in our passage. He says, but we brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager, here it is, with great desire to see your face. So when Titus comes back and he communicates to Paul and he describes the church's attitude towards him, it's really intensified by the addition of the prepositional prefix, you're longing for me. See, all of them are, you can just put for me behind them because they all are included there. You're longing to see me again. You're longing to hear me again, to sin under my teaching again, to have the relationship restored to what it was. See, And this is really wonderful news to a man who didn't want to go back. I can't do this again. He said, I went and, and it was a troubling time with you. I can't go back there again. He's already very sorry about the relationship. He couldn't deal with it and deal with any more sorrow at that point. So he just didn't even want to deal with them. He's just separated because he couldn't really take any more pain. And, and this, you know, it's not a tolerance of Paul. Okay. It's not a, you can do this in relationships, you know, well, I'll restore it. I'll just tolerate them. 
I'll tolerate their idiosyncrasies, the way they conduct themselves. It's not tolerance. It's longing, okay, from the church to have a relationship restored. It's not, okay, well, we'll just put up with his, you know, his really great writing, but his really poor speaking or whatever, however they spoke about Paul. And this is our next principle of faithful ministry and spiritual response. It's number five. You know, here it is. You know that there is a spiritual response taking place, mark this, beloved, among spiritual people when there's a longing for fellowship. There's a longing. See. Beloved, if, you, if you're in the church and you don't long to be with brothers and sisters in Christ in fellowship, coming to meals and doing the things that we do together, could I suggest to you that you may not be where you need to be in your walk? There's going to be, when there's spiritual response among spiritual people, you're going to long for fellowship, for mutual ministry, for mutual caring, mutual belief benefit. Don't, don't tell me, well, I'm just a private person, okay? I'm, you know, I'm an introvert. If you're spiritual, you're going to long for spiritual fellowship with godly people. And Paul, in, in the middle of a troubling relationship with the church, and much animosity from the church towards Paul, the fact that they longed to have fellowship with him again was a sure indicator that the Holy Spirit was at work in their life. Secondly, Titus mentions their regret. He says, he tells Paul, and Paul respect, uh, re- repeats it to them. He, he, tells Paul, he tells Paul this, Paul writes it down. What did you say that they felt about me? This mourning, you're mourning. And again, each of these spiritual responses qualified by the last part for the sentence, for me, you're mourning for me. And of course, this was very comforting to Paul. Uh, the word is used in James. It gives us a wonderful illustration of what's going on with some of the, in the Corinthian church, James 4.8. It says this, it says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded be miserable and, here's our word, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned, here's a, here it is again, to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he'll exalt you. When you get to the point where you're mourning, you're regretful of how your relationship has been with the Lord, and you mourn about that, then you're going to desire that right fellowship, aren't you? When you're mourning about the fact that you were wrong, that's the first step, isn't it? Paul is encouraged and comforted by this. Why? Well, they were sorrowful. Over what? Well, over their sin against Paul and over their breach of that relationship and over what they'd done to bring him pain. And that's really our next principle of faithful ministry and spiritual responses. Number six, you know that there is a spiritual response taking place among spiritual people when what? There's an intense sorrow over the broken relationship. I'm not just talking about just blowing stuff off. We do this so often in the church. Well, I... You, you hurt somebody with your feel, with something you say or whatever. It's just like, oh, whatever. Whatever. That is not a spiritual response, okay? That's not a spiritual response. Spiritual things are happening when there's a mourning over anything that might be done by you to violate that relationship. As some were no doubt regretting that they had mistreated Paul. Certainly, they were regretting their gossip. They were regretting their backbiting, their slander. They were regretting, as we looked at last time, the ministry of Hebrews 13, 17, they had created for him, which was what? Not profitable for them. They weren't submitting to him. He was troubled. He didn't have the heart to do ministry or have vision or anything. It's just, he was just struggling in Troas. He came on to Macedonia and it wasn't any better. So they made the ministry a grief. 
they would know that even more when they received this response after, you know, Titus talks up to him about it and he talks about the grief that he's had and they'd made that ministry of grief. Perhaps they were mourning over their mistreatment of Paul and, and it made his ministry unprofitable. They wept over the foolish actions and the broken relationships. And by this time, the issues were in the past. And yet they wanted to make them right. They didn't just move on. Well, it was, it was past that, you know, no, they had a mourning for the broken fellowship and their part in it. See, and then the next thing we see, this is the third thing really, as it relates to reconciliation, it's going to move out broader to their conduct, but right here is reconciliation. He says, zeal, your zeal again, uh, with the last part of the sentence, it's qualified by for me, your zeal for me. And of course, very comforting to Paul to know this interesting word. Zeal, not easily translated. I'm trying to grab the sense of it. In Hebrews chapter 10 uh, and verse 27, I think in our modern and modern English uh, uh, application of zeal, we just think about somebody who's excited and had a lot of zeal, right? He brought some zest to the ministry. That's not how Scripture describes it. So the idea of zeal here, Hebrews 10, 27, this is our word, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the, our word, fury, of a fire which will consume the adversaries. When the Lord brings the good news and people reject it, this is the contents of Hebrews 10.27, and you heard the good news and you thought it was great and then you just went ahead and did what you were doing before, all people can expect is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. It's, it's also translated fierceness. Zeal is translated fierceness in the Word of God. Zeal has really two sides to it. It combines two emotions, love and hate. If you want to get this, the feel of zeal in the Scriptures, it's two. And the idea from the Scriptures, uh, there is, there's such a strong love for someone, as it is here, Paul, or certainly something. You have this strong love and and you hate anything that harms that individual or that thing, see. So it's a combination of love and hate. Where you would have zeal, you have an overwhelming affection, and at the same time an overwhelming protection, see. So this is very meaningful for Paul, that he hears the church has a zeal. Titus explains it to him that way. And that's the idea we see from David. So we can get the sense of what this should look like in your own life. If you're looking for a spiritual response, to reconciliation. If you're coming to a spiritual response to how you're supposed to interact with people in the church, see, that's the real-time application for us. In Psalm 69.9, David says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So David's looking at the temple. He's looking at the house of God, the place of worship, and he says, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. And that's a strange thing to say, isn't it? Zeal for your house is eating me up. That really gives the sense of the emotion some in the church now have for Paul. David combines uh, the affection in Psalm 84.1. He says, he says, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand in the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. In other words, David says, I love all that is about you, God. Everything. But zeal's eating me up. What's that mean? Well, it's just this. 
There are, there are people who are desecrating the temple. There are people who are dishonoring it. There are people who blaspheme in your house, and that's tearing me up. I love your house, and I love your word, and the fact that people are desecrating it, I hate that, and that just tears me up. And so you see, on the one hand, there's this love and affection, and on the other hand, this hostility and this hatred of anything that touches that which he loves. And, and this is a very intense emotion, a very forceful expression of the depth of the feeling. And we see it again in Psalm 119, verse 139. My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words, you see. So your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. David says, I love your word so much, but it's really tearing me up because I am overcome with this fierceness because people don't live by your words, God. That's, that's the balance, see. And of course, you remember John 2, verse 17. The disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem in the beginning of his ministry and he makes a whip. And what's he do? He goes into the temple, and he drives all the money changers out, and it is not pretty. He kicks over all the tables, and everybody's upset. They're like, what do you think you're doing, and where'd you get this authority? And he just walks in there, and he just takes over the place. And it's because he loves the house of God. Do you think he loves it a lot? Of course he does. And he hates the terrible things that are going on there and the iniquity that's going on there. And so he makes a whip, and he cleanses the temple. And when he does it, his disciples remember Psalm 69.9, and they say, Zeal for your house would consume me. They remember that exactly spoke of Christ, and they made the correct application. So this is our next principle of faithful ministry and spiritual responses. It's number seven. You know that there is a spiritual response taking place among spiritual people when there is a zeal for the solidarity of relationships in the church. See, There's going to be an intensity among spiritual people, a zeal that will not allow relationships to be fractured. You shouldn't be just fine with allowing a relationship to just spin off in some direction as a result of something you said and you just don't care about it. See? That's the opposite of spiritual responses, okay? That's the opposite. There's giving you an intensity among spiritual people, a zeal that won't allow relationships to be fractured. And beloved, mark this. It's going to require fervent love because people can be annoying, Right? People can say things that very, really get under your skin, and their personalities may completely not match up with yours. And so you're going to have to have a fervent kind of love. If you're going to have this kind of fierceness about the solidarity of the unity in the church and the solidarity of unity of relationships between people, then you're going to have to have a fervent kind of love, a stretchy kind of love that just kind of covers over a multitude of sins because they're going to offend you. But this is greater than that, see? And you're going to have a sense of a greater purpose if you're going to stick with it. There's more here than just whether I personally match up with somebody. There's more here at stake. There's a higher bar that we're supposed to aim for than just whether or not I like you or you meet all my needs or whatever. And it's going to require you putting your ego away and your sense of whatever it is intelligence or education or spirituality or whatever, however you evaluate yourself over-evaluate yourself, as I do. You have to put all that away. These are the things that matter. You want reconciliation. Paul says that was the indication reconciliation was occurring. These three things, see. Your longing, your mourning, your zeal, see. And all these nouns, feelings expressed by the church, Titus was laying them to Paul, and at the end of each one is he implied, for me, see, for me. And those two words really helped to qualify all the other stuff. See, the problem was a lack of reconciliation. It was very one-sided. The church was the offending party, and they blamed Paul for the offense, and it was the worst possible scenario. 
church was the offending party, but they were blaming Paul for being the offending party. And Paul is the one that's extending love and covering a multitude of sins and continually swallowing his pride, and he's not holding it against them, the things that they've said, and continue to say some, continue to say. But these two words for me mean, as Titus relays this to Paul, that the process of fervent love and speaking the truth and pointing out the roadblocks of reconciliation that he'd done had borne fruit. And some reconciliation had occurred between some in the church and Paul. And that little phrase for me just connects to all three of the prior statements. And Paul says, it was your longing for me and your mourning for me and your zeal for me that caused me, listen, that caused me to rejoice even more than even in the coming of Titus. The fact that I understood some of you were moving in the right direction for reconciliation. The parts were in place, the pieces, to complete all of this. See, And, and these three words really describe faithfulness, see, that Paul longed for. As we get ready to close, you know, this is a word that isn't all that common today, faithfulness, in a society where everybody does whatever they want to do. The virtue really seems lost to many marriages today. To, it's lost to families, it's lost to churches, it's lost to friends. Faithfulness is lost in jobs. People switch as often as they possibly can for one purpose, just to climb the corporate ladder. And it's what Paul longed for from the Corinthian church, faithfulness. Many of these people he had led to faith. He'd established this church as an island in the middle of all this iniquity and all this idolatry and all this stuff, immorality that was going on in Corinth. He'd led them to faith. He'd preached them for 18 months. Many of them were discipled by him. And this is what he longed for, see? He taught most of them. And this, this virtue is one of the greatest for human relationships. And it means that you have a longing to do right to the other person. And faithfulness means that you will mourn whenever you do anything at all that could harm that relationship because it's so precious. And, and it means that your faithfulness will be zealous of anything that could wreck that relationship. So you're always on guard for that. And guarding that relationship and that unity in the church uh, with everything that you have. And beloved, I hope you're faithful to God in that way. I hope you have a longing and I hope you mourn when you do anything that could cost a harm to that relationship. And I hope you have a zeal for that relationship with God and nothing interferes with that. See? Because if that's how your relationship with the Lord is, then there's going to be really great ground to plant the seeds of reconciliation and faithful ministry among other people. See? I hope you're faithful to your husband or wife in that way. I hope you're faithful to your children that way. And on out to your friends and your brothers and sisters in Christ and the church and those who lead ministry. And if you haven't been, if you haven't been, and these, these things are not present, make it right. Bridge the gap. Or just blow it off. Oh, well, let's just pass. It doesn't matter. It matters. Because those are spiritual responses by spiritual people. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. If you would with me, just give our hearts a chance for the Lord to speak.
isn't the time right now to manipulate you in any way. The preaching of the Word of God brings about change for people with open hearts and a volitional will to act in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we look for right now. A joy, an opportunity to bring our own hearts in line with what we see very clearly presented here, what brought Paul so much joy in the middle of a very hard relationship with perhaps the worst church in the New Testament. But there were little movements in the right direction which caused so much joy to be with Paul. So much comfort. Even in the middle of the problems, the Lord didn't take them all away. They were still there, but he could rejoice. So Father, we thank you today for an opportunity to just look at these kinds of things that are spiritual responses from spiritual people, a longing, a mourning, a zeal for the relationships that are broken, relationships that are fractured. It is the beginning of the right relationship between a horizontal relationship and then it restores that fellowship with you. So Father, we really desire to see that be true to whatever extent it needs to be applied here and however it ripples out from each individual here and whatever relationship they may have or not have with those who are around them. If we're going to be yours and we were delivered from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of your beloved son, then apparently there's going to have to be a significant change in how we interact with people. So Lord, I pray that you'll point out the fleshly responses that we've gotten so used to doing, maybe even since coming to faith, we've, we've got into a pattern of, of a harshness and an unkindness or a backbiting, a, a gossiping, all, in, all with a spiritual flair, of course. And Father, bring conviction where you need to. I pray that you remove the faulty parts and put the right parts in. As we so much desire to model ourselves in such a way that uh, there is a significant difference between how we live and how the world lives. So have your will and way here, we pray. We thank you uh, for in just a moment we're going to have a missions presentation. Uh, short-term missions thing that's going to be going on. Lord, I pray that you'll guide us as we think uh, thoughts about the Great Commission, the outreach into the world, and the Great Commandment of loving. I pray that we'll be able to put those to work knowing that's our purpose. As we teach the Word each day, Lord, come bring us in conformity in those things, I pray. For this is the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.